Good evening, and thank you all very much for coming to our policy forum tonight. My name is Roberta Attenberg, and as a former Assistant Secretary of HUD in the Clinton Administration, I'm proud to say that I'm a former colleague of tonight's important guest. I believe and I hope most of you will agree that the Newsom Administration is truly devoted to smart, innovative, and visionary policy. While much of the great policy um, that the Newsom administration implements is developed right here in San Francisco, as the mayor often says, we're even better at stealing good ideas from other people. Our guest of honor tonight is known around the world for his great ideas, and we hope to steal a few. Robert B. Reich is professor of public policy at the Goldman School of Public Policy at the University of California at Berkeley. He has served in three national administrations, most recently as the Secretary of Labor under President Bill Clinton. He has written 10 books, of which the San Francisco Public Library has all 10, including The Work of Nations, which has been translated into 22 languages and the bestsellers, The Future of Success and Locked in the Cabinet, and his most recent book, Reason. His articles have appeared in The New Yorker, Atlantic Monthly, New York Times, Washington Post, and Wall Street Journal. Mr. Reich is also co-founding editor of the American Prospect magazine. Nearly five million people hear his weekly commentaries on public radio's marketplace. And they're so humorous, in addition to being wise. Um, at the nation's, as the nation's 22nd Secretary of Labor, Reich implemented the Family and Medical Leave Act, led a national fight against sweatshops um, and illegal child labor around the world, headed the administration's successful effort to raise the minimum wage, secured workers' pensions, and launched job training programs one-stop career centers, and school-to-work initiatives. Under his leadership, the Department of Labor won more than 30 awards for innovation. Tonight, we're focusing the discussion of the, on the future of cities in America and what do we need to do to ensure that San Francisco has a future that is as vibrant and prosperous as its past. The format is very simple. Professor Reich will give us a few minutes of comments, followed by a discussion with the mayor. Um, after about 40 minutes, we'll take questions. You have blue cards uh, at your seats, and you should write your questions on those blue cards. Uh, when you write a question, just wave it in the air. Someone will come by and pick it up uh, to give that question to the mayor. That'll be our format. I want to thank you uh, all in advance for coming, and I want to welcome to our stage Professor Robert Reich. You're at the podium. Mayor, thank you for inviting me. Honored to have you here, and it's an honor to finally be able to get a chance to meet with you. And I imagine everybody here feels the same way. We think we've known you on TV, we've known you by your books, all the good writing, all the good work you've done, and here we have an opportunity to spend 
next 45 minutes to an hour together and get a sense of where everybody, all of you are, in terms of uh, what you're feeling and what you're concerned about. And we look forward to that portion of this program. Uh, but, Mr. Secretary, we have a great privilege of having you now. Uh, and uh, I'm hopeful that you'll say a few opening remarks, and then we'll have a chance to dialogue and pick up uh, on what it is that uh, is driving for this moment in your life, this portion of your life, uh, your particular passions. Uh, well, first of all, let me thank all of you for coming. And, uh, oh, thank you. I can turn it off. <laughs> I think I, I think we're all set. I think we began sitting. Yeah, just stay sitting down. I was going to stand and make a formal presentation, but I won't do that. Um, but I want to thank you for your time, and also thank you for those of you who are in government. I want to thank you for your public service, because I've spent half of my adult life uh, in government and the other half of my adult life in the classroom. And uh, both of them are tough jobs, but uh, government was the – well, they're both very rewarding, but uh, – Today, in this kind of environment, you have to have a thick skin and you've got to uh, appreciate yourself because there are not too many people around who are going to say, thank you. <laughs> so I'm going to say thank you, and, and, I, and I, I appreciate what you're doing. And, Mr. Mayor, I appreciate what you're doing uh, as thank well. You. Thank you, all of you. Uh, I thought I'd just make some very, very quick uh, points and maybe as a point of embarkation for a discussion. Uh, I was thinking about... New Orleans, thinking about San Francisco, thinking about American cities, uh, and there are two basic principles uh, that came to mind, and I've written about them, but I want to kind of put them in the context of what's happened in New Orleans and what you're facing here in San Francisco, totally different contexts. Uh, one is that capital is global, and that means that every mayor, every governor, uh, every head of state is directly or indirectly saying to global capital, come here, come to my jurisdiction, come to my city, come to my state. Uh, and if global capital says no, then you might as well pack up and go home because we are all dependent on that flow of global capital. But there are only two ways that a mayor or a governor or a head of state can persuade global capital to come. And herein lies the big difference between what cities do and what states do and what nations do. Uh, one way of persuading global, company, uh, global capital to come is to say, come here because we are so cheap. We have very low taxes. We have very low or non-existent regulations. We have very low wages. Uh, we can do almost anything uh, cheaper than the next guy. And if you come here, your capital combined with our inexpensive production will generate a high return. The other technique is to say, and it's not said directly, I'm saying sort of figuratively you say, to global capital, come here because we are so productive. We may be more expensive, but we're so productive because we have such an educated workforce, because our infrastructure is so good, because we are healthy, because we are insightful, because we're creative. Come here and your capital, given our high productivity and given our insights and the value we generate, your capital plus our value is going to generate an even higher return for you. Now, again, that choice is not ever made explicitly or it's rarely made explicitly, but you in effect, every state, every mayor, every nation is making that choice all the time. 
And the United States, one of the big problems you know, because we got the census figures just uh, yesterday or the day before, is that median wages in this country are going absolutely nowhere. The poverty rate has leveled off, but it kept on growing, even though the economy was growing since 2000. We have some people in this country who are saying, in effect, to global capital, yes, enrich me because I have the skills personally, and I have the insights personally, and I'm doing great because I've got the right education, and I'm living in the right place, and I'm surrounded by great infrastructure, a lot of it private, and I'm doing well in the global economy. But we've got a large and growing population, including a lot of the middle class, that are dependent on government officials to be making a deal with global capital that they're not making. Because, as you know, around this country, our schools and our infrastructure and all sorts of other public investments are not being made, and the quality of all of these public institutions is mediocre at best, and it can't be mediocre in the global economy, because then you're forced into saying to global capital, come here, because we're so cheap. And if you do that... And if you're forced into that deal, there's always going to be some place around the world that is cheaper. And you are in competition with a basically a lower and lower and lower and infinitely lower and recedingly lower set of competitors. Can't win that race. Can't win the race to the bottom. Always going to be some place that's cheaper. The only race you can win is the race to the top. But if our most privileged citizens are basically saying to global capital, don't worry about us, we're fine, we're getting great private education, we're getting great private infrastructure, we're doing just fine, and if most of our middle class and lower middle class and working class and working poor and poor are in the other boat and dependent on government, and the government is dependent in turn on the upper middle class and the people who are at the top who are doing fine anyway, they don't want to pay taxes, why should they? They're doing fine. Then we're in a pickle. And that's the pickle we're in. <laughs> so it is very important for all of us to be saying the truth. And the truth is that we're all in the same boat together. And the rising tide, just like John F. Kennedy said, the rising tide lifts all of us or it doesn't. But we can't live in a society in which uh, the rising tide is, lift, or is lifting the, the yachts and the dinghies and the rowboats are all sinking. Supply-side economics, the prevailing economic view of the current administration in Washington, stands for a very simple proposition. And that proposition is you make rich people richer or let them keep, as they like to say, more of their money, not pay it in taxes. They will turn around and invest in the rest of the country, and that will trickle down. But as we have seen from the census figures from the day or two days ago, nothing is trickling down. This is a figure, this is, a, this is an idea, supply-side economics, that has been proven absolutely dead wrong. In a global economy, money can go anywhere in the world. People are not necessarily, who have extra money because they're rich and they are taxed less, are not going to turn around and necessarily invest their money here. Nothing is trickling down. And the alternative to trickle economics, call it bottom-up economics, it means investing in people, investing in infrastructure, investing in our creative and our productive potential from the ground up. And that guarantees you, unlike supply-side economics, that guarantees you economic growth and economic growth that is widely shared. There is no necessary contradiction between economic growth and fairness. 
Now, Mr. Mayor, the only other thing that I wanted to lay out on the table has to do with New Orleans and has to do with the poor, because not only is capital mobile, but people are mobile, and poor people, uh, despite their best efforts, are also mobile. They have to be mobile. In every city in this country, every city around the world, you go to the poorest section of the city where the infrastructure is worst, where you have the greatest risk of water mains or toxic chemicals or a broken this or broken that or levees not holding back water. And that's where the lowest property values are and that's where the poor are going to congregate because that's where the lowest property values are. And so that when something bad happens, when there's a natural disaster or a calamity or when there is just naturally a decline of the infrastructure, the first infrastructure to go is obviously where the poor people are. And the question then and that's a moral as well as a political question, is, is there enough political will to get them back? The answer is, unfortunately, in a lot of our cities, the implicit, never explicitly stated, the implicit goal is to get rid of the poor. My home state, Fall River, Massachusetts, they made it very explicit. Fall River, Massachusetts, they took down low-income housing, and they didn't replace the low-income housing. And I talked to the mayor, and I said, well, what's going on? And he said, we don't want the poor. This is not a new phenomenon. 1973, I was hired by the mayor of New Haven, Connecticut, come up with a plan to reduce poverty in New Haven. And we came up with a whole bunch of, I thought, where they were very good ideas, and he rejected all of them. And the idea that won out was not an idea that we had put forward. It was to get rid of affordable housing. Send the poor to Bridgeport. The problem that we all face, and it's a problem we don't like to talk about, but it's a problem that is just as tricky as the problem of international and global capital, and that's the problem that the poor cost more. And when you have a city that has elites, people who are doing very well, they don't necessarily want to spend a lot on the poor. They don't necessarily want to see homeless people. They don't necessarily want to be reminded that the number of poor in this country keeps on growing. They would rather not think about it. They would rather not have to deal with it. They would rather not have to pay for it. And so the bottom line to both of my stories, the story about global capital and the story about the poor of the United States and the poor of San Francisco and the poor of New Orleans, the bottom line is just exactly the same. We've got to develop stories and moral principles as well as policies that inform the top 10 or 5 or 20% by income and wealth that they have a stake, a moral and political and self-interested, enlightened self-interest stake in making sure that prosperity is widely experienced and widely felt. And that's what government and that's what a lot of political leadership is all about. Easy to say, very, very hard to do. And I salute you all and I salute you, Mr. Mayor, for trying to make that happen. So that's what I had to say, but I'd love to talk more about it and... 
Well, I mean, let's talk about how. You, and I like the word morality, but I'm so used to guns, gods, gays being the issues of morality. But you bring morality in the context of poverty. Uh, why isn't it that we? I mean, why? why let me ask you: Why should the top 10% care when they're doing so bloody well? with this income disparity. They've done well. They continue to do well. They've got the right people in office. Supply side works for them. Uh, what, how can you convince them? Well, you can talk about their children and your grandchildren. And you can talk about a society that if it continues on the trajectory we're now going, where you only have basically, I talked about the top 5, 10, 15, 20 percent. No, it's the top 1 percent. They are the ones who are really doing much, much better. Everybody else is sort of doing okay. And those are folks earning, what, 750000 plus thousand? About $750,000, $800,000 a year or more. Uh, and uh, although obviously it varies by city, right. San Francisco, probably the top 1% is doing much better than that. But yes, overall in the nation, $750,000, or more. And what you need to tell those people is that, number one, uh, they can't really escape. Their children, grandchildren, they're part of a society. Uh, and there is no escape. Uh, they are going to be affected by a society that is becoming more and more unequal, whether that is crime and social problems, or it's uh, their children and grandchildren being in a society that is not a very pleasant place to be because democracy doesn't even work anymore. Uh, you've got an elite and you've got everybody else who's angry. Uh, actually, what's happening in the United States now is that, yes, you've got the top 1% taking off from the rest. But you've got every rung on the economic ladder is becoming wider and wider apart. Mm. Uh, so it is true the top is going extraordinarily well. Most of the economic great gains of the last six years have gone to the top 1%. But you still have quite a lot doing well below that. I don't, they're not doing it super well, but they're doing fine. Uh, the message has got to be the same. There is no escape. We're all together. And then the moral message, it's not just an enlightened, self-interested message. The moral message is uh, patriotism. What does it mean to be patriotic? What does it mean to be patriotic? Uh, it means to take responsibility and take responsibility for the society as a society, meaning that we all have Commitments, we have responsibilities, we have mutual obligations because we're members of the same society. That's what patriotism means. And the people who are doing well didn't do well and are not doing well because they are islands, because they are unique, sole individuals who never had anything to do with the rest of society. They're doing well because they have a safe, clean society, a society with a good, reliable, stable government, a society that defends itself with national defense and police and firemen. They're doing well because they've got a, ma a market, a national market. They had good schools. Uh, their children may be in private school, but many of them had good public schools and good public education. And they need a workforce that is well-educated as well. So that's on the, the top 10%. But all right, let's talk about New Haven and, and adjust now for different conditions, though more exacerbated conditions, more problematic, I imagine, than it was even during your New Haven experience. So what is the recipe? Um, I imagine we begin uh, with minimum wage. We begin with investment in education, uh, investment in infrastructure. Uh, what is the recipe? Uh, and is there a recipe that a city or a state uh, or what's the recipe on a national level that you think can actually pay real dividends? Uh, well, the most important, uh, unfortunate reality is that there's no magic bullet and there's no easy recipe. Uh, it does have to do with education, uh, affordable education, higher education, early childhood education. Talk about a payback. Yeah. You know, what we knew about early childhood education, extraordinary payback. Uh, it has to do with really creating and taking seriously the goal of creating good schools. 
I personally am not opposed to some choice with regard to schools, as long as they're public schools, as long as we make sure that it's not cream skimming. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I think that a lot of the poor in this country would like to have more choice with regard to their, their schools. I think we, we have got into a battle over that that really we should not get into. And that's form of charters, but even vouchers? Uh, well, I don't use the term vouchers. I use liverwurst, but I mean vouchers. <laughs> uh, you know, I've come up with a, I've come up with a plan, uh, and it's easy to come up with plans when you don't have any responsibility. And I've come up with a plan which is a reverse voucher system. That is, it gives uh, young people and their families uh, a voucher that is inversely proportional to their income. Uh, so the poorest families get a $10,000 a year voucher. Uh, well, I can bet you uh, that you got a lot of uh, public schools. And by the way, this is only available to public schools, but I'm going to define public schools a little bit more broadly to include any school that meets certain public criteria. Uh, And I'll bet you that you've got a lot of places that would do anything they could to get some of those poor kids. Mm -hmm. Um, And that inverse voucher, you know, goes right up to the top families. They can only say $3,000. Uh, I'm not. I don't want to. I don't want to belabor this point. But but schools coming up with ways of really making our schools work is critically important. Uh, minimum wage, the earned income tax credit. Minimum wage. We spend a lot of time because it's a symbolic issue. I think it's wonderful that San Francisco has such a high minimum wage. Uh, but we've also got to widen, enlarge the earned income tax credit, which is a reverse income tax. Uh, I think it's also look when we talk about infrastructure, making sure that people can get from their homes to where they work. A lot of people can't afford to be in most cities, particularly not a city like San Francisco. Uh, Commuting is a huge problem for most people. We've got to make those commuting corridors easier for people. Infrastructure that works, that enables them to afford to live at a place that's not an hour or two hours distance from where they work and where the jobs are. Uh, And we could go on. One thing that is not often talked about is macroeconomic policy. The Federal Reserve Board is the most important institution with regard to determining how many poor people there are in this country. Paul Volcker, Alan Greenspan, and now Ben Bernanke, uh, these people have more to do with the rate of poverty in America than any other people because they are determining how high interest rates are going to go up. In the short term, they're determining the rate of unemployment. And I'll tell you, the poor are always at the end of the job queue, the job line. Every time there's a higher spike in unemployment, it's the poor who lose out. You know, my old boss, Bill Clinton, uh, I saw something he wrote in the New York Times the other day about welfare reform. Right. And, ten years. Ten and years. he thinks welfare reform uh, worked. Mm-hmm. Well, I look, I love Bill Clinton, and I am loyal, and I just think I'm, I think I'm very proud of what we did in that administration. But I think welfare reform, we don't know whether it's worked, mm-hmm. because... Remember, it went into effect in 1996. Uh, The economy was terrific right through most of 2000. Most welfare reform schemes had a five-year lifetime limit. Well, you've got some very bad years between 2001 and 2006. A lot of people lost jobs. They were out of work. They had transitional assistance, but they're coming to an end of their lifetime Transitional assistance right about now. And the economy is now, it looks like, starting to dip again. Mm -hmm. So we're going to have a lot of people who are out of work and poor. And we also do have a lot of working poor. The number of people who are working poor in this country has skyrocketed. Now, I don't call that necessarily a success. So Federal Reserve Board, very important ingredient. The economy should be run at full tilt. 
And uh, we ought to worry about inflation when we see inflation. Inflation is not nearly the problem a lot of economists now think it is. I could go on uh, with a long list, but I, but I think the, the point I want to make is that there's no magic bullet. There are many things we could be doing, and we're not doing it as a nation. All right. Just an inquiry. Uh, looks like, and as you said, we have about 36.9, 37 million people living in the poverty line. The census numbers went up. I guess median household income went up modest 1%, uh, nothing. which is nothing. Uh, and it was the first year, as you said, I think since 2000, where we didn't see a, a significant increase in the number of people living in poverty. Now, Mr. Mayor, remember, in the context of all the numbers you just issued, the national economy itself has been growing at approximately 3 to 4 percent a year. So there's a huge increase in the total amount of wealth in this country. Right. Now, if it didn't go to the middle class, and if it didn't go to the poor, yeah. if it didn't go to the upper middle class, it's uh, a good point. But, but to, to an obvious one to boot. Um, but to the point on interest rates, during the Clinton administration, the years you were there and, and subsequent years, Poverty started to ease down a little bit. Same Fed chief between 2000, 2, 3, 4. Um, same Fed policies. Poverty increased. Yeah. It wasn't exactly the same set of Fed policy. Alan Greenspan told us, I was in charge of the economic transition team for Bill Clinton in 1992, 1993. So I put together a group of people, uh, Bob Rubin and Laura Tyson and a lot of people who we all worked very hard. The first thing we found out was that the budget deficit in the Bush 1 administration was $300 billion a year. And nobody had mentioned it was that high. Dick Darman confided to us, but they had kept it pretty secret. And the first thing we had to do, Alan Greenspan was very specific about this. Get the budget deficit under control, because if you don't, I'm going to worry, and my governor is going to worry too much about inflation, and we're not going to be able to reduce interest rates. But here's the one brilliant thing that Alan Greenspan did. We got to 1994. We started getting the budget deficit under control, and Greenspan said, I am not going to assume, as most economists have assumed before me, that the natural rate of unemployment, below which you couldn't go without risking inflation, is 6%. No, I think the economy has changed. I think we can go down to 4%, maybe even 3.5% without igniting inflation. And he allowed the economy to expand that fast. Got unemployment down to 3.5-4%. In fact, in Boston, it was 2.5%. When you get unemployment rates down that low, now granted, that official rate disguises a lot of hidden unemployment, but when you get unemployment down that low, you've got employers who are actually having trucks going out into poor neighborhoods trying to pick up people. No wonder poverty started dropping. Now, you've got a totally different Alan Greenspan in 2001 saying to George Bush, oh, I think these tax cuts are great. Mm -hmm. I don't know why Alan Greenspan showed his political ideological colors in 2001 and 2003 supporting uh, tax cuts for the rich that just enlarged the budget deficit. And now we are living with, in terms of a huge budget deficit, remember, the baby boomers are very close to retirement. A $200 billion budget deficit every year right now is translating into trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars in unmet and expected and known expenses for Social Security and Medicare coming up just around the corner. So obviously there are inflationary pressures, even if the oil shocks were not there, inflationary pressures in the economy. And what the Fed is feeling it has to do, given those inflationary pushes, is raise interest rates. Well... Uh, you know, I don't know if they're going to continue raising, but of course what happens is the poor are out of work. 
And the number of jobs created so far since 2001, six, about 6.2 million jobs nationally. Compare that to over Bill Clinton's eight years, 22 million right. net new jobs. This deficit, what about the argument? As a percentage of GDP, it's by no means the highest, maybe in terms of total dollar amounts, though it's, I think, the fourth largest this year versus the largest a number of years ago. Uh, percentage of GDP, uh, we can afford to continue to run these deficits. We have historically. There's cycles. Well, we, well, we can't, for one thing. I mean, and, and, and you all understand this, and I apologize for saying something that everybody understands, but the actual budget deficit is way, way understated because the Social Security surpluses mm -hmm. are used in a unitary budget to mask the true extent of the budget deficit. So if we actually took full account of the fact that we, those Social Security surpluses are being utilized, and we got the early boomers, I'm 60 years old, the early boomers are five years away from Social Security and Medicare. Uh, we have no business using those to artificially create the impression, the artificial impression that the budget deficit is actually much lower than it is. It's much, much higher. And with those boomers coming up to uh, retirement, it's going to explode. And then, of course, there's also the alternative minimum tax. Every politician in Washington is looking for ways to cope with it. You know, there's no way the middle class is going to accept uh, being hit with the alternative minimum tax. So that's, that's less revenue, big, big chunk of revenue now. So how, given all of this, and given the fact we have a war going on, incidentally, <laughs> and a military budget that is out, totally out of control, how can, with a straight face, the administration in Washington talk about keeping these, what were going to be, temporary tax cuts for the rich. Mm -hmm. Well, it's, they can't. I mean, they, it's, uh, it's irresponsible. Speaking of irresponsible, what about the death tax or the Paris Hilton tax, depending on which frame you want to use? <laughs> How does that uh, well, mean, uh, look is, at is, what, is I mean, it a here, meaningful this is, this thing, or is this much to do about nothing? Well, it's, it's, it's much to do about a very important moral principle. Uh, look, the estate tax hits uh, about the, right now about the top 1.2% by wealth of Americans. Uh, if we were to abolish that estate tax, it would not be a huge disaster for the budget, but it would be a disaster. That's, uh, that's about, about 1.6 trillion over the next uh, 10 years. Uh, we wouldn't have. Now, why can't the top 1.6% of the country by wealth who have never done as well, never in the history of humankind, why can't they simply pay the same kind of estate tax they were paying in the 1990s? And the same thing goes with capital gains and everything else. Particularly given everything else I've said about what's happening to the poor, about how they get hurt when the federal budget deficit goes up because the Fed has to raise interest rates, and that means fewer jobs and the poor are at the end of the job queue. And because we can't afford good schools and good health care and all kinds of infrastructure for the poor. Why can't that point, which is such an obvious point, and it's a moral point, why can't that be understood? Why isn't it? Well, it's not understood because a lot of people don't want to hear it and don't want to understand it. And it's also not understood, frankly, because uh, the Republicans have a little bit of a monopoly right now because they own the House, they own the Senate, and they own the presidency, and they own the Supreme Court, and they have a monopoly to the media. It's hard. It's hard. And I don't want to make, I don't want this to sound too partisan. 
<laughs> but it is rather hard to get a word in edgewise uh, when the Democrats are out in the, you know in the f- in the field in yeah. left field. Uh, I think it'll. I think that. I, I hope that changes. I think that uh, Democrats will get the 15 seats necessary to take back the House uh, in these midterm elections, uh, and then the Nancy Pelosi and others will have a little bit more of a megaphone. Yeah. Uh, but uh, and I think also Democrats and others. It's just not. It's not just politicians. I think. I think uh, it's responsibility of a lot of us uh, who have any access to the media uh, to make these points very, very clear. To the public, they should not be perceived of as partisan points. It's not a matter of partisan point scoring. This is a matter of common morality. Fifteen, almost sixteen years ago, well before Thomas Friedman, I wrote a book called "The World Is Flat." You were talking about technology. You were talking about globalization. Talking about boundarylessness multinational corporations and the like. I didn't make the money he made off his <laughs> But obviously quite prescient. Uh, you talked about income inequality in that book and the like. How concerned should we be about a revitalized European Union, about these former Eastern Bloc countries coming into um, this new world, uh, India, China? How concerned? Well, I don't think we, we need to be too concerned in the sense that uh, there's not a fixed number of good jobs to go around. I mean, the economy, if you look at the last uh, 500, 600, 800 years where we have fairly good economic data, the last 100 years where we have very good economic data, what we see is that uh, prosperity in one place usually yields prosperity in another place. Uh, In fact, one of the primary goals of American foreign policy ought to be uh, to create more good jobs around the world. Uh, we ought to celebrate the fact that India is getting wealthier. Middle class in India is, getting, is expanding. That's terrific. Uh, the Chinese uh, creating hundreds of millions of good new jobs for the Chinese. But they're taking my jobs here. Well, but they aren't. They aren't. In fact, there's a lot of misunderstanding about this. Uh, for example, the number of factory jobs in China keeps on shrinking, has over the last five years. How can that possibly be? China is the manufacturing capital of the world. How can the number of Manufacturing jobs in China keep declining. It's declining because they're becoming more productive, because they use more machinery, more equipment, because these old state-run factories that were unbelievably inefficient are all being shut down, because Western capital is coming in and creating more and more efficient manufacturing facilities. So the Chinese have a problem. They're attracting huge numbers, tens of millions of people out of the countryside and into the cities. These people want work. And the Chinese are finding that they are getting more modern manufacturing facilities and they have fewer and fewer manufacturing jobs. So when we scratch our heads and say, why is it that they're keeping the yuan low relative to the dollar? We have to understand that they've got a huge social problem and that we have an interest in making them, you know, helping them solve that social problem. We can't just sit down the sides and say, oh, you've got to raise your currency values. Mm -hmm. Uh, We've got to at least understand what they're up against. Now, in this country... Uh, let's face it, the number of manufacturing jobs has shrunk considerably. Manufacturing is still around 16 to 20 percent of our economy, but the number of people it takes to make a car or to make a television set or to make anything, even in the United States, is shrinking drastically. I've been to some factory openings 
In fact, uh, a governor of a state, that, a Midwest state that I will not name, because he's a friend of mine, asked me to come out and help him open a factory, uh, just ribbon cutting, because I used to be former secretary. Of, you know, I was secretary of labor, and I went out, and I went there, uh, and the factory was humming, beautiful, big, modern factory, humming, and he spent a lot of taxpayer money uh, seducing some company to come there. And I went into the building to find all the new jobs, and there were ten people. Ten technicians sitting behind computer consoles, and those computers were linked to numerically controlled machine tools and robots. And if we think globalization is taking away our jobs, we haven't been paying attention. It's not globalization. It's technology. It's productivity. And that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. Mm. Now, what do we do about it? We've got a huge number of people being dumped into the local service economy. Retail, restaurant, hotel, Hospital, surface transportation. Now, describe San Francisco's economy. Well, now, wait a minute. I mean, San Francisco has more professionals and a higher median income than most places. And it's a city that is older than most cities. Don't have too many children here because most people can't afford to live here. But the retail, restaurant, hospital, hotel workers, yes, they are the core of every city's economy. That's exactly right. And... Uh, you don't want to get rid of those jobs, but you can, and this is where the minimum wage comes in, you can raise the minimum wage because they are not in direct competition with foreigners. They're not in direct competition, direct competition, even with people in the next state. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a higher minimum wage, I think, is a, a just thing to do, particularly when most customers are pretty, are relatively well off. I mean, I look at... Somebody has got to pay. There's no such thing, as economists like to say, as a free lunch. Somebody does pay, ultimately. But the point I was starting to make is that there are potentially many, many jobs in construction and in technology. Technician jobs. People who install computers. People who are office technicians. People who are laboratory technicians in hospitals. Uh, A lot of jobs that don't require a four-year college degree, but do require typically some education beyond high school, some post-secondary education. And that's why our community colleges are our crown jewels. I mean, we ought to be just embracing everybody who has anything to do with a community college because this is the place where a lot of those skills can be learned. They are sheltered from global competition. Many of them cannot be done by computers. Some of them can be, Mm -hmm. but they're sheltered from a lot of computer technology, and they are important to business. And they pay pretty well. So you're not as fearful of globalization and, and the loss of manufacturing jobs. Uh, is, but, but that being said, there are a lot of people, a lot of regions uh, in this country that have been severely impacted. Uh, and we have people that are unemployed or cities and towns that have completely, um, um, I mean, they've just, the, the face has changed. Downtown cores have been abandoned. Look at the challenges in Detroit, et cetera. I mean, how do you square... Uh, that uh, uh, your analysis with that reality? Well, the reality is that, number one, the number of jobs we have, the number of jobs has to do with macroeconomic policy. That is, fiscal and monetary policy. That's where you get aggregate demand from. In other words, the number of jobs, the reason that George Bush created 6 million jobs over the last six years and Bill Clinton created 22 million over his eight years uh, is not because of foreign competition was more intense now than it was in the 1990s. It's because you've got now macroeconomic policies, fiscal and monetary policies that are just 
not up to what they ought to be. Uh, but trade is, or globalization and technology together. Think of them together. You can't separate the two. Globalization and technology are absolutely working together. Globalization and technology together do set a priority and establish priority on infrastructure and skills. And so if you've got people who are skilled and who are surrounded by a really good infrastructure, they're going to be valuable in the global economy. They're going to be doing just fine. And if you have people even in your local service economy, like, say, Costco employees, I mean, they are well-trained. They are pulling home $18, $19 an hour. Uh, well-trained people in your local service economy can also add a lot of value. I don't mean to be Pollyanna about it. I mean, yes, those manufacturing jobs in Detroit uh, have disappeared, but my point is they'd be disappearing anyway, even if we had no trade. They're disappearing because technology is taking them away. We used to have 30%, 30% of our country before the Second World War was still on the farm. Now we have 5% on the farm. Now, does that, is that, was that a tragedy? Is that, well, it, it, was a, it was a big dislocation, but why did it happen? Because farmers became so much more productive. It was a huge benefit to this country that we have such extraordinary farm productivity. Too bad we have to pay price supports and subsidies, and um, it, that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a utter stupidity. But nonetheless, uh, we do have the benefits of huge farm productivity, but it did mean it was a dislocation. A lot of people had to come from the farms. They had to come into the cities. They had to learn something. They had to do something different. And we're facing huge, huge dislocations. Detroit is a huge dislocation. But look at San Francisco. Look at Boston. These are cities that are based upon professional services, and they're doing extremely well. And the local service economy embedded in these professional service cities is actually doing quite well as well. Do you think there's a social contract in this country? You brought up World War II. Coming out of World War II, we had a vibrant middle class. Um, but we started to see this income inequality. It certainly is not a completely new phenomenon. We started seeing it grow in the last few decades. Uh, what fundamentally, is that a Republican thing? Is it a Democrat fault? I mean, what, what started changing in this country? Uh, well, it's, I'm glad you asked that question, Mr. Mayor, because I am writing a new book about that. All right. <laughs> <laughs> and I, when, my books are the kind of books that when you put them down, you can't pick them up. <laughs> um, but, uh, but, but, but if, you, if you go back in time, look at the economy of the 50s and 60s and early 1970s. Yeah. It was a highly productive economy, and we had a very large and growing middle class. And as it became more productive, everybody's wages and benefits went up together. Why? Well, peel back the onion and look at that economy carefully. And that economy, and it's a political economy. You can't separate economics from politics. That economy was an economy comprised of very large, what economists called oligopolies. In every industry, there were three or four major producers. They roughly coordinated their production and had huge long runs, huge mass production. And that was combined with a unionized movement, unions, unions. 35% of, of the public, of the working population was unionized in 1955. And these unions together with big business, big business and big labor, were coming up with prevailing wage agreements 
And those prevailing wage agreements were spreading the prosperity beyond the unionized segment to almost everybody else. Every employer didn't have a unionized uh, workers was basically trying to match the unionized rate because they didn't want to be unionized. Uh, we also had a legislature, a Congress, uh, that was very acutely attuned to local retailers, uh, to small businesses because they were in their congressional districts. Uh, and you had a, a, a system of negotiations in this country, some of them explicit, like labor negotiations, some of them implicit, like the negotiations that occurred uh, in regulatory agencies uh, to keep service to small towns. That's what the CAB and the FAA and all of those uh, did. They just they subsidized small towns. Uh, that's what AT&T did when it was Ma Bell. Subsidized the, the city people, subsidized the country people. Uh, but all of those cross-subsidies and all of those big, massive labor bargains disappeared. With the disappearance of the high-volume, standardized, stable, oligopolistic mass-production economy. That mass-production economy ain't coming back for all the reasons that I talked about. Technology has marched on. Uh, but that doesn't mean we can't have a more equitable society. We can. We just have to realize that, again, there's not a, as the supply-siders think, Wrongly, there's not a trade-off between economic growth and fairness. In fact, quite the contrary. If you believe in bottom-up or bubble-up economics, fairness is your key to economic growth. Don't you think, though, I mean, aren't we all responsible? I mean, look, I want the best price. I'm driving down wages. I'm driving down pensions. I'm driving down health care. I want to go to, you brought up Costco. How many people here have been to Costco? I imagine 99% of us because it's cheaper. And there's a price to pay for that, is there not? Yeah, there is. Uh, well, look. I mean, it comes in the context of wages being suppressed. Most of us have a brain that is split right down the middle. We have two lobes. One lobe is the I want to get the best deal I can lobe. Right. Which means that I'm not going to pay attention to my local independent bookstore if I can get it easy, easier on Amazon. I'm going to buy online. I'm going to go to uh if I'm going to go to the big box retailer. Isn't I'm that creating greater income disparity? It is. In this it country? it so is in a way. It is in a way. If nothing else is done, it is. If there was no such thing as government, if you had no public investment, if you had no infrastructure, if you had no training, no education, if you had nothing else, if you're just a bunch of individuals in a kind of a, a, a textbook neoclassical economy and everybody's going around trying to get the best deal and driving down everybody else's wages, yes, that's what happens. Uh, the bottom half sinks, and Walmart pays dirt-cheap wages, and yet a lot of people depend on Walmart. Right. But luckily, we don't have to live in that kind of a world. Luckily, we do have the capacity to make public investments. Luckily, we do have the capacity to have a progressive income tax. Luckily, we do have the capacity to pass laws uh, that provide health care. Uh, maybe sometimes requiring employers. I think it's an interesting debate. I personally don't think we, I think uh, health care and pensions ought to be decoupled from employment. I think uh, it ought to be part of the public sector. Uh, some of you agree, some of you maybe <laughs> don't, don't agree. Uh, uh, so I don't, I, I, I don't think uh, it's worth, I don't, I, I don't like to push companies to try to provide health care and pensions if they're not providing this. Uh, but that's a different, that's a different subject. But we do live in a society and the society can do you know, we're, we're not victims of the economy. Right. The economy is our economy. 
We can organize ourselves as we wish. You brought up health care. Uh, new census numbers, 46.6 million Americans. I think it was 45.8 last year, 46.6. On our way, imagine by 2010, 52 million Americans without health insurance, double-digit increases in premiums. Uh, one point, what is it, uh, $1.7 trillion a year we're spending on health care, more than any other rich nation, and yet we have um, a huge portion of our population without health insurance. How serious a crisis is health care, or is it overblown? Um, is it exaggerated? Um, uh, what, what, what do you make of it? Well, it, 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 it's a big problem that is not, I don't think, terribly well understood. You've got one problem, which is all of those people, 47, it was 38 million, by the way, when Bill Clinton issued his universal health insurance plan that nobody understood, including me. <laughs> uh, but now, uh, but, but the problem is larger. There are a lot, larger, a lot of people who are uninsured. Uh, that's one big problem. Second problem is the middle class. Employers are shoving more and more of the premium increase costs, deductibles and copayments, onto middle class people right. who can't afford them. So they are paying more and more of their total income in premiums and copayments and deductibles. And then you've got, on top of that, a health care system where the incentives for health insurers are to avoid sick people and find healthy people. So where the, the most expensive system in the world, designed, really designed to avoid sick people. <laughs> and that makes not much sense. Yeah. Uh, so uh, the question is, oh, but th there's another point here that, that is not, I don't think, terribly well understood. It is perfectly appropriate that a rich economy, and we are a rich economy overall, pay a larger and larger portion of its total economic well-being to health care. That's what we would expect in a rich economy. That's what we would do in a rich economy. And that is, health care is a public good. It is a private good. We want more of it. We want to live longer. If you had a choice between, you know, spending $50,000 on health care and living another two years or not, you would spend $50,000 on health care and live another two years. If you lived in a society that enabled you to spend a lot of another 50, because it can afford another $50,000 for you to live two years longer, you would. And so that is not necessarily the problem. But we've got so many people who are uninsured and not so many people who are barely holding on and so little preventive health care. That is, problems of obesity, problems of diabetes, problems of chronic uh, heart conditions and chronic heart... Uh, so many things that are going to cost so much money that could be at least recognized and dealt with earlier if people saw doctors more often. But again, this is a completely upside-down and crazy quilt system. The good news here, the good news is that once the middle class... And once some big employers figure out that they have to take action, things are out of control, they're spending too much money, sure. something, it, you create a political climate in which it's possible to have a discussion, yeah. again, about universal affordable health care. Do you, th you think it was a significant setback? I mean, you had a democratically controlled Congress when you guys came out with the health plan. Uh, we're unsuccessful. Two years later, we had the Gingrich Revolution. Um, do you think that set back this debate nationally, meaning it's the third rail in politics? No one wants to go through the process that Bill and Hillary Clinton went through? Uh, it, it did set us back in terms of health care. Bill Clinton, once that health care bill was defeated in 94, uh, never uttered again affordable universal health care. He got too scared of it. Um, I hope... 
Hillary Clinton is not too frightened of it. I don't think she is. I think she's been talking about it. She will be talking about it. Uh, but it has to be back on the national agenda. It did take, it, it, it robbed us of 10 years. Yeah. We, uh, we'd be remiss, and I know there's a lot of cards, and I look forward to taking everybody's question. Um, obviously, everybody here, I imagine, uh, is very interested in your opinions on the state of uh, the political world and the one that we're living in and the state of the Democratic Party. Uh, so many people coming out of the last election saying, well, the problem with the Democratic Party is we just don't know how to speak correctly. Uh, that if we just change our language, healthy forests, clear skies, partial birth abortion, you know, de death tax again, idea of, you know, the, oh, just language, the Lakoff version. That if we just frame things differently, uh, because we're just right on all the issues, that we'll be successful. Others say there are no issues in the Democratic Party to even frame, even bad ideas we don't have. Lack of leadership and imagination. I mean, where are you in, in, in all of that? I mean, are you hopeful? Do you feel uh, utterly helpless? Are you concerned? Well, look, I'm always hopeful. I would not have spent half my adult life in politics if I weren't hopeful. And I'm, <laughs> in fact, I'm a cockeyed optimist. Uh, I don't think the problem is, uh, is one of words. I mean, George Lakoff is a friend. Yeah. Um, I think that the Democrats could do better expressing themselves, uh, but I don't think it's, it's a matter of words. I think it's a couple of things. First of all, it's a matter of, it's very important to, to talk about moral values. I've used the term morality several times mm -hmm. over the last hour. I believe deeply that these are moral issues. And we've allowed the Republicans to kind of assume the mantle of morality when they are confusing private and public morality. They confuse it in the sense that what happens in bedrooms is not the public's business. What happens in boardrooms and in the halls of Congress is the public's business. And public morality is a matter of what happens in the latter. And we ought to be talking about public morality. We want to be talking about the morality of people um, using tax shelters. Uh, to avoid paying taxes. Rich people who uh, use tax shelters all over the world. That is, and we ought to be talking about patriotism because that is, as I said before, the essence of the moral underpinnings of patriotism is the sense of mutual responsibility. So Democrats need to talk in moral and value terms. Also Democrats, many of them, not you, Mr. Mayor, not people in this room, <laughs> but many Democrats that I know are gun shy. They are just plain nervous. They have been, uh, they, they don't have the courage of their convictions. They don't know exactly what their courage, their convictions ought to Why? be. Why? Why is that? Because they just, uh, they're frightened by what has happened over the last 20 years. They're frightened by Fox News. They're frightened by the advent of the right wing, the, the power that they see in the money that has been assembled and, and, and charged and channeled into media. Uh, and I think that's made some of them frightened. And what they don't understand is that, is something that the late Paul Wellstone explained to me one day, uh, he voted against the Iraqi war on, you know, he was in a very tough contest out there in Minnesota against Norm Coleman. And most people in Minnesota at that time, when that Iraqi war vote was taken, uh, were in, in, in support of the president and wanted uh, a positive vote. And Paul voted against it. And I called him the next morning and I said, Paul, I admire you very much. You are one of my heroes, but I don't want you to Kill yourself. I don't want you to kind of cut your nose off to spite your face and, and die on your own sword here. And he laughed on the other end. He said, Bob, we got some overnight polls, and I'll tell you something. As I predicted, more people supported me, support me today than supported me yesterday. Because they saw how 
much I believed and how much I had the courage of my convictions, and as long as I can explain my convictions to them. I, I mean, I, obviously they wouldn't support me if I was, I, I was way off the radar screen, but as long as I have logic in my side, they want somebody who has that kind of courage. Yeah. And I think the Democrats need to learn that message, that, that lesson. I read somewhere, and correct me if I'm wrong, you said uh, in response to the Democratic Party that there's not really much of a party and that, in contrast, there is a Republican Party, um, meaning there's an infrastructure within the Republican Party of discipline that doesn't necessarily exist as it relates to the Democratic side of the fence. Do you still feel that way? Well, I, I, I do, and I'm, I, I think there's an asymmetry that has always been in politics, and particularly over the last 40 years. That asymmetry is the people who tend... Now, I'm going to generalize here, and I don't want to offend anybody in this room, uh, and I and and oh, when you talk about partisan politics, sometimes you do offend people. And I and uh, but I'm going to make a psychological generalization that actually uh, one of my colleagues uh, at uh, the University of California at Berkeley uh, has tested. And the psychological reality is that people who are of generally authoritarian temperament, who like discipline and order uh, and want rules and clear rules, and get a little nervous if there's not discipline and order and hierarchy and clear rules, they tend to become Republicans. <laughs> and people who are in the other psychological camp, who really don't like discipline uh, and don't much like order and don't like hierarchies and don't like rules and sort of uh, like things a bit a little bit uh, vague, uh, they tend, other things being equal, to be Democrats. Now, if that is the case, and there is empirical support for this, if that's the case, which party is going to be more organized and more disciplined <laughs> and more hierarchical and, uh, and more ordered? Well, need I say anything more? <laughs> By the way, I'm, I'm happy to go on forever. I just, oh, I just yeah. don't want you to... I don't want, no, no, no. No. I just don't. I don't. I just don't want you to feel that you're a captive audience. And, and I. I also think that it's quite amazing. I don't know if somebody is somebody typing that. How does that? Rather. How does that happen? Is that happening automatically? On? Yeah. You are doing. That's amazing that you can do that. Ted. Really, thank you for that. I, I've never. I've never seen anything like that. It's, it's. It's humbling to see my words appear so quickly. Uh, in any event, I, I, I leave it up to you, Mr. Mayor, and, and others how long you want to stay. We'll go through a few questions uh, with okay. everyone's indulgence. Um, there, there are a number of questions with, with similar themes. There were a few questions, and I, I think it would be interesting uh, for me as well, um, about your experience um, having just run for governor a number of years ago uh, uh, for Massachusetts, playing in the political uh, realm. Uh, was that a good experience for you, a bad experience? Um, and, uh, and, and, and being on the other side of the uh, equation uh, within government, an appointed position uh, versus being out front. It's very, very different. I think anybody uh, who is interested in government and politics, anybody who serves in government, who has been around campaigns, who has been around elected politicians, uh, needs to understand that unless you've actually done it, you don't know anything. Uh, because there's an ex existential reality around running. And, uh, Mr. Mayor, you know, and I know, and maybe some of the people in this room know, but when you are putting yourself really on the front line, yourself, 
your mind, body, spirit, your personality, when you are putting yourself on the front line, it is different from when you are simply serving on a staff or you're serving in government. And I never understood that existential reality until I ran. Uh, the other, and I, it was great, it was a wonderful experience. Uh, I'm glad I did it. I met, you know, thousands of people and I had a great organization and I loved it at the time, but it was totally consuming, totally exhausting. I spent five hours a day, every day, on the phone trying to raise money. It was humiliating, humbling. Uh, it was one of the most difficult things I'd ever done. And I discovered something about myself and something about politics that I didn't know. Um, now, we all know that there are two kinds of personalities in the world, roughly speaking. They're the extroverts and the introverts. I don't mean, yes, I've already talked about the other scale, the hierarchical. But no, I'm talking about extroverts and introverts. Uh, and uh, I always consider myself sort of an extrovert. That is, I like people. I like talking to people. I like meeting people. But I'm not. <laughs> and here's how you know. And you, you don't know until you run. Because an, a true extrovert is somebody who gets, in every conversation, a little bit more energy than they give out. A true introvert is somebody who, in every conversation, loses just a slight bit of energy. In other words, there's a tiny little bit of net gain or a tiny bit of net loss. But if you multiply over thousands and thousands and thousands of people, there's a huge difference between the extrovert and the introvert. Bill Clinton is an extrovert. He... You know, he gets up in the morning, he doesn't have much energy because he hasn't slept all night because he's been playing cards and reading books. And he starts campaigning. And Bill Clinton, at the end of a day, has more energy than he started with because he just gets energy out of every interaction. Al Gore is an introvert. Al Gore uh, can do the same thing and do it well. But he's exhausted. And it's just a matter of two degrees as to whether you get the energy or lose the energy. And I discovered I was losing energy. Speaking of losing, you, you were... Speaking well, of losing, I did lose. <laughs> <laughs> that could be why I lost. No, no, no. You, uh, you were rather audacious at the time. You were the first and only serious candidate for serious office in the United States of America that had the audacity to come out and support same-sex marriage. What possibly were you thinking? <laughs> well, um, at that time, Vermont had a civil union right. uh, statute, and uh, a lot of people thought that was a good thing. Uh, and I uh, had some people in my staff who were gay, and we talked about it, and they said, well, if you support civil unions, why don't you go all the way and support gay marriage? And I couldn't come up with a good answer. And the only answer I could come up with was uh, it was politically, you know, easier. Mm -hmm. But that didn't sit well with me. So I came out in favor of uh, gay marriage. Did it hurt you? No, it didn't hurt at all. I thought now, remember, this is Massachusetts. Yeah. Uh, now, there are conservatives in Massachusetts, and it was controversial. But, uh, no, I go back to the Paul Wellstone principle. Uh, and I salute you, Mr. Mayor, and San Francisco for what you've all done here on the issue. I mean, if you, if you believe in what you're doing, and you, and you, and you believe in it, and you have good reasons, uh, people may begrudgingly, uh, go along with you, but they'll, most of them will go along with you. 
there are a lot of, it's very interesting actually, some of these questions and themes, about five or six folks talking about pensions, the unfunded liabilities, particularly as it relates to health care, governments with these new GASB rules that are coming out. We just did ours. It was actually more modest than we expected, but we have about $4.97 billion in unfunded uh, liabilities to our retirees. Uh, how serious a concern is this or should be for municipalities, states, for the federal government? I, I think it's a fairly serious issue. I mean, unfunded liabilities are all over the place. I mean, the budget deficit in the federal government is an unfunded liability, uh, and uh, the national debt is an unfunded liability. I mean, we're dealing with unfunded liabilities everywhere we look, uh, and uh, the problem with unfunded liabilities is we can't continue to borrow because it means that the borrowing costs keep on going up higher and higher. Uh, uh, and so th there needs to be some plan, some system in place. Uh, we don't want to eliminate all liabilities, and we don't want to eliminate the budget deficit, and we don't want to eliminate necessarily the national debt. That would be silly. Uh, but we want to have make sure that there are parameters, that it's within control. Um, but it reminds me of something that I didn't say before that I wanted to say. Uh, roll back uh, the national income accounts, for example, 30 years, 40 years, and you find that the wealthiest people in this country were supporting uh, the public sector through their tax payments. Whether we're talking about pension liabilities or we're talking for the public employees or we're talking about budget budgets overall. Now today, the wealthiest people in this country are still supporting government, but they're doing it through lending government money. Money has to come from somewhere, and about half of the federal budget deficit, half of our national debt, uh, we owe to Americans. The other half to foreigners, mostly uh, from Asia. Uh, but we owe it to ourselves, but the ourselves are very, very rich people. And the question, again, it's a moral question. If you're going to support the government, uh, why did we have a system in which rich people supported the government with their tax payments 30 years ago, and now they support it by just lending the rest of the country money? at fairly high interest rates. A lot of questions here. You brought up Al Gore. Obviously, right now, synonymous with the issue of climate change, global warming. Um, but the questions here all relate to the economics uh, of energy, oil dependence, impact of higher oil prices, the expectation that things aren't going to change in the near term. Uh, how serious a concern is our energy policy from an economic uh, perspective? Uh, and how compatible is uh, global stewardship uh, and environmental uh, uh, stewardship uh, to a growing economy? Well, we, we've got to talk about energy policy, foreign policy, and environmental policy altogether because they are all totally interwoven. Um, the reason that we are in the Middle East is because of oil. And the reason that we are so dependent on oil is that we haven't invested in alternative fuels and in conservation. Uh, and the reason we haven't done that is largely about how we've grown and the way we've grown and the values we've grown with. Uh, and the reason that we don't approve or haven't supported the Kyoto Protocol is also because we don't want to make the sacrifices. Now, again, I'm very proud now to be a resident of a, of a state that is making some major political headway and some real leadership on that issue. Uh, but uh, the rest of the country and the, the politicians are very, very much afraid. Uh, we have got to do several things simultaneously. We've got to invest in alternative to fossil-based fuel. Uh, 
And we can do that. If we can spend the kind of money that we are spending, 500, 600, 700 billion dollars a year on the military in Iraq, we can certainly spend a small fraction of that developing new industries that are not fossil fuel based. Uh, secondly, we've got to create incentives for a conservation industry. And there are many, many ways that we can enlarge the returns to conservation. Uh, and thirdly, we've got to raise oil prices. Hmm. Uh, got to raise oil prices. Yes. You say that and gasoline is three dollars a gallon. Well, I know politicians can't say it. I can say it. I'm not running for anything. Uh, but uh, raise them further. But they have to, it, what's, what well, they have to be raised. Well, they have to be raised. Look, uh, we ought to. We're not still in this country paying the two, the true social and political price mm-hmm. of every gallon of, of of gas or every gallon of oil. Uh, and so, uh, what needs to happen? And I think the only way we're going to get alternative fuels and the only way we're going to get real conservation is if that oil prices and gas prices go much, much higher. Uh, but we have to got to simultaneously reduce the impact of that on poor and working class people. How do you do that? Well, we reduce their taxes or reduce their obligations elsewhere. For example, we say the first $20,000 of their income will not be subject to Social Security FICA. We raise the cap on Social Security FICA, the percentage of income subjected to that. It's now about $100,000, I think, for so. So we raise the cap. We say people are earning over $100,000, you've got to pay a little bit more. But that means, you see, that people, again, at the bottom, first $20,000, they have more money to pay for the higher fuel costs. Yeah. So they come out roughly even. Yet we are also creating a huge economic incentives to save on energy, to create an alternative energy industry, and to create uh, a great industry in conservation. Do you think, uh, and we'll conclude with these two final questions, I, I get a lot of it in here, talking about the divide in this country, some just red state, blue state. Do you think this country is truly as divided as some would lead us? No, think? absolutely not. That's a, there is a big divide over certain highly salient so-called religious moral issues. Uh, but beyond that, if you ask people about schools, do you want good schools? Do you want good highways? Do you want good infrastructure? Do you want a progressive income tax? Do you want a, uh, all kinds of other things? People are quite united. And even when you ask people, should there be a division, a sharp division between church and state, most Americans say absolutely. Uh, there is remarkable unanimity. I, 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 drove, I drive whenever I can. I drive across the country. I still have a lot of friends and contacts, obviously, on the East Coast, and now I'm living over here, so I've been driving back and forth, and I, you know, I drive a Mini Cooper. <laughs> now, there's not one Mini Cooper in Oklahoma. <laughs> Why is that? And, uh, in fact, I, uh, my last drive over, I, I stopped at the gas station. There was a gas line, actually, in Oklahoma at the gas station. And I, uh, these big truck drivers, big kind of guys, came over to the Mini Cooper, and they tapped in the window, and I rolled down the window. They said, how does anybody fit in there? <laughs> I said, and then I got out. LAUGHTER uh, but I, but I, I, I often, people, people often, uh, particularly people that remember the Clinton administration, they sort of remember me vaguely, or they come up to me in, in you know, in parking lots and uh, airports, and, but when I'm driving along, whether they come up in a uh, fast food place, and they say, weren't you, uh, aren't you, uh, didn't you, uh, 
and uh, we'd start talking about uh, politics, and I've had a lot. It's like a free-floating focus group. Yeah, and uh, and it's uh, it's marvelous. And it turns out that again, I'm I'm just staggered at the extent to which people agree on basic things. Now, most people think the Iraqi uh, being in Iraq is nuts right now. They didn't three years ago, but most people think we should not be there and that it's causing more terrorism than not. And by the way, my free-floating focus group is also borne out by, by the polls. Uh, most people in this country, uh, again, uh, they want things for their family and their kids, uh, whether they're red state or blue state, it's exactly the same. Uh, so the elites in Washington are more split than they have been in my experience. I started out, my first tour of duty in Washington was 1974, 75, to 80. And uh, then Republicans and Democrats got along. Conservatives and liberals got along. There were liberal Republicans. Uh, people were civil to each other. But after 1994, when Newt Gingrich came in with his band of renown, uh, that all changed. And people on the Hill, really, Democrats and Republicans, a lot of them don't talk to each other. And there are, there are, there, it's nasty. Uh, and that has kind of uh, modeled, unfortunately, created a model for the rest of the country. People think we're much more split than we are, but the elite in Washington is split. Most of the rest of us really are not that split. You heard what uh, former Speaker Gingrich said of Nancy Pelosi last night. said uh, she will bring San Francisco values to Washington, D.C. as Speaker, if indeed she wins. She has an attitude on foreign policy, an attitude of weakness, appeasement, and surrender. Surrender. It would be a disaster for our country if Democrats take back the House and Nancy Pelosi. I mean, I imagine you're quite in tune with that kind of vitriolic language, having experienced firsthand the ascendancy of the contract. Yeah, that's mild compared to what I <laughs> subject to. I used to measure the fact I used to tell my staff, if we are not excoriated, castigated in the pages of the Wall Street Journal, editorial pages, at least once a month, we're not doing our job. <laughs> um, yeah, well, Newt Gingrich uh, in person is not nearly as bad as he sounds. Uh, but he uh, does believe in vitriolic rhetoric, and he made it the norm, unfortunately, in the House. And then a lot of those people, like Rick Santorum, came over to the Senate, and they kept it up. Was it really, was 94 really the tipping point yeah, to this kind uh, of there was a, I can tell you I was there. I would go up to those House, I would go up to hearings. I talked to Republicans. I, I mean, we, you maybe don't remember. There were a lot of uh, people on the Hill who were Republicans and who were moderates and who were actually pleasant. Uh, but there were also a lot of Democrats who were very pleasant, and they were also moderates. And there was a lot of discussion. There was just a, a great deal of civility. And it disappeared almost overnight. It was between uh, the election of 1994 and January of 1995, and I really it was like, it was like night and day. I, I would be up testifying in January of 1995, and... People who had become just, who just elected, yeah. uh, would start really yell, I mean, literally yelling at me. I'd be, a, I'm a cabinet officer, and I was just not used to people, members of Congress, venting their spleen. Because there was a television camera. Was there not before when you were up there? You've uh, served with many, three, three people. There was not that kind of Rhetoric, vicious, vitriolic rhetoric. This is sort of pre-C-SPAN, you wouldn't have that. Or now it's pre... 
prime time. Oh, no, no. Even when they were, look, the difference between, I'm talking about the difference between October of 84. Just that quick, yeah. And February of 95. I'm talking about three or four months. The atmosphere changed so dramatically. The television cameras were just as much in present before. Is it going to ever go back to the way it was? Will civility return to Washington, D.C.? Can it? That's a good question. I mean, we, I mean, do you we think all the know Democrats are going to come in benignly and say no, uh, w- no, no. If the Democrats take over the House, unfortunately, and I say this unfortunately, I think it's uh, I think there will be a lot of vitriol. I think uh, you know you're going to have uh, people who have been quite angered and whose constituents expect them to hold hearings that will show the, the, you know, the cupidity and venality and malfeasance and nonfeasance of the Bush administration officials, and there'll be investigations galore. Uh, and uh, I don't think it's going to help the Democrats. I think it's just going to look like a lot more partisan bickering. I hope the Democrats don't do it. I hope the Democrats use the opportunity to lay out a few, not a lot, not a lot of policy wonkish stuff, but a few big important ideas around big important issues like health care and uh, use it to show the nation that there really is a positive agenda. Uh, but we will, we will see. Uh, you know, the problem again with, with the House, as we all know, is that with the district gerrymandering that's going on, uh, you've got people running for office who are running against uh, people in their primaries who are uh, wilder and more radical than they are. So they, it, it pushes people to the left, to the farther left, and people to the right, to the further left. Right. And so the people who end up being elected are, uh, are more extreme. Last question, and, and again, because it came up thematically so many times, and, um, and I don't want to put you on the spot. It's always an unfair question. But what do you, what, what's your sense, moving beyond the... Um, these midterm elections in Congress. What's your sense in 08, uh, I mean, beyond 08, the presidential scene? I mean, do you think the Democrats have a real shot? Do you see any real candidates emerging uh, beyond the obvious, uh, the Hillary Clintons and others? Uh, What's your sense of that landscape, the prospects uh, for a Democratic president? Um, I think the prospects are uh, are pretty good, uh, not necessarily for the right reasons. Uh, the economy is slowing down. Uh, that means the next two years could be, there's a 50-50% chance of a recession. Uh, but even if it's not a recession, a recession is really two quarters where the economy shrinks. I doubt, well, 50, I think it's 50-50. But even if it's not a recession, it's going to be a major slowdown. And that's going to hurt uh, the Republicans. Uh, and it's going to mean that a, a Democrat is going to be more likely in there. Uh, nothing good can happen in Iraq between now and, uh, and the election. Uh, I think that is continuing to descend into civil war. That's going to hurt the and Republicans. You're for a three-state solution there, right? Well, I, I think that, and I, it wasn't my idea, uh, 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 the uh, former Ambassador Galbraith uh, to uh, East in the... Um, I can't remember precisely what his position was in the State Department, but John Kenneth Galbraith's son has written a new book coming up with that kind of solution. It's not really a solution. It's... Uh, it's the best of a lot of bad alternatives, and that is partitioning between the Shiite and Sunni and, and Kurdish uh, parts of, of Iraq. Uh, I don't know what other possibilities there are, frankly. Uh, but uh, 
it's a mess, and it's going to get not necessarily better. It's going to probably get worse. So you've got the economic problems, the foreign policy problems. Uh, I think the American public is going to say, just the hell with all of you, unless it's John McCain. Uh, John McCain has managed to position himself to be the maverick, the non-Republican Republican. Uh, not, uh, you know, he is uh, uh, Mr. Integrity. Uh, whether he is or not, I don't know. His politics overall are much, much more conservative than mine, and I think most people I know. Uh, but I think he, uh, even though he's very old and he's not all that well, uh, he might have a very good shot. Uh, but he's the only one I see on the Republican side who... Not your current governor of Massachusetts, uh, Mitt Romney? No, Mitt Romney is an empty suit. He really is a... <laughs> I mean, he's a, he has the whitest teeth I've ever seen on a, anybody. <laughs> but he's a, but there's almost, there is almost nothing to the man. He's a nice man, but he's absolutely vacuous. Uh, so I would... If the public... Great, Republicans put him up. Uh, but on the Democratic side, uh, I think that there is a, an, an interesting question, because remember... Uh, it's very, very difficult to, be, to get to the presidency or get to the nomination. Uh, but certainly it's difficult to get the presidency from being in the Senate. Yeah. Almost nobody does it. I mean, John F. Kennedy was the last one I remember uh, to have get, uh, done it. But uh, go back in history, it's almost impossible, uh, partly because uh, uh, you've got so many votes that you're recorded on, partly because uh, people who are in the Senate too long start talking like... Yeah. Strange creatures. They just, yeah. you know, they they uh, they just talk differently. Bob Dole says, I mean, what are you? What's your position on you know uh, healthcare? He said, oh, that bill's in markup uh, to a six-year-old kid or something. I mean, they just live in a different. They don't. Life. They don't. They talk yeah. strange languages and yeah. they they uh, and they stop connecting with people. So most most of the people who actually become president come up through the states, um, and most of them governors. Uh, and we don't know the governors. I mean, most people don't know the governors. In 1991, I remember I was on a national uh, television program, and somebody said, uh, the host said, so who's going to be the next uh, president of the United States? I said, Bill Clinton. And he said, who? <laughs> uh, we don't remember, but we did not know who Bill Clinton was, most of us, in 1991. Uh, and I think that's going to be the case again. There are some governors out there, some, I think some very good ones, uh, some very good Democratic governors that the public doesn't know, who may emerge. Uh, I think uh, Hillary's an old friend of mine. We went to law school together, and, uh, and I, I, I think the world of her. I think if the election were today, she would win the primary and she'd lose the general. But two years is an infinity in politics, and she, can, uh, she might be able to change that around. Final closing question. Um, <laughs> time. Uh, uh, we've certainly exhausted all of it and more. Uh, what... what keeps you up at night? What is, I mean, in terms of just the world and the one we're living in and the one we're trying to build, what is the one thing beyond all others that concern you most? What is the one thing It just, it just for the life of you, yeah, it, it drives your biggest um, angst? Well, I, I, I would say um, I don't uh, go to sleep with a lot of anxieties. Mm. Uh, and I, uh, I don't know why. Maybe it's because I'm in California. <laughs> um, but I, I, certainly, I, I certainly worry about the fate of the country and the fate of the world. Um, not so much uh, about terrorists uh, blowing something up. They will in the United States. Uh, uh, not so much about uh, the next natural disaster. It will happen. Uh, not so much about uh, uh, another uh, 
bird flu or a plague across the world, mm-hmm. something like that will happen. No, I'm, I'm, I'm worried more about the capacity of our political institutions, which are really us, the capacity of us collectively, to do what we need to do. Um, and I worry about this country because I think that over the last 45, 50 years, certainly the last 40 years I've been paying a lot of attention, there has been a diminution of the capacity of our political institutions to do what they need to do. By political institutions, I mean government, generally. The capacity of government to do what it needs to do. We are not paying attention. And therefore, I, uh, I just worry. We don't understand and appreciate the importance of government as the way we collectively do our and the public's business. Uh, and that lack of capacity, uh, we can get along with for a, fun, for a time. Mm. You know, we cannot pay attention. The, the elites can pay, cannot pay attention. Uh, the middle class can think it's all their own faults, uh, that they don't have jobs or good jobs. Uh, the poor, we can pretend that they don't exist. But it'll catch up with us. It'll catch up with us. And that's my biggest worry. Uh, thank you all. I really appreciate your round of applause. Thank you, Mr. Secretary. Thank you very much.